Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory. If you haven't already subscribed, please catch us wherever you love to listen to your podcast, from the Relevant Radio app to Apple, YouTube, you name it, we are there. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to go and give us a five-star review to help other people discover the podcast. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Welcome, welcome to the program. It is Brooke Taylor back with you in for Timory with a solid hour of trending topics. We are going to start with Catholic Schools Week. Did you know this is the 49th year? the 49th annual year. And to start the topic off, we have one of my favorite educators, Lieutenant Commander Ali Ghaffari. He has been on the program before sharing his own story of going from atheism to faith, specifically the truth of the Catholic Church, and from flying F-18 Hornets to studying G.K. Chesterton, teaching leadership at the Naval Academy, and eventually going on to open his own school called Divine Mercy Academy. And so essentially, he has devoted his life to discovering and then implementing what he believes is the best model of Catholic pedagogy for our children. So we have a timely topic to talk about and a great expert to connect with. And then all the way from Australia, really excited about this. I've been singing that. I should have had you pull that, Jim, the song Down Under, because Father Robert Nixon is with us, and he is from Australia. So he is a scholar of composition and musicology, philosophy, literature, education, and will join us. In fact, I think it's, I think it's the next day. It's February 1st over there, his time. But he is up, and he is also a translator and will join us to talk about what we will focus on in our interview. That is a recently translated, for the first time in English ever, writing of Thomas Akempis. It's the volume of Meditations on Death, Preparing for Eternity. Really fascinating, eye-opening, sobering subject matter. So not an hour to miss. And and thankfully, if you're not able to catch the entire show, you can always listen on demand via the podcast. Producer Jim, always quick to have it posted and published. So you can find today's show on the trending show page, just like all the other programs or wherever podcasts are heard. And the studio line is open. So I want to make sure to get that out there right away. one 914 If you want to call in, weigh in, in either one or both topics for today, we will do that. So let's jump in. Our first guest is Lieutenant Commander Ali Ghaffari, fighter pilot, former atheist, husband, father, foster father, and his mission to save souls of our children through an introduction to a classical education in the Catholic tradition has been featured on everywhere from Fox News here on Relevant Radio. And to that end, he retired from the Naval Academy where he was teaching leadership to midshipmen to devote his life to this. He opened a school called Divine Mercy Academy and going strong. Now we'll hear about that. Joining us now, Lieutenant Commander Ali Ghaffari. Hi, Ali. Hey, Brooke. How are you? Great. It's good to talk to you again. How are you? I'm doing really well. It's good to be back on your show. Thanks for having me. 
Yes, likewise. And this is a good time because it's Catholic Schools Week and the the Catholic Church invented the idea of universities. No Catholic Church, no universities. And, and, you know, that's the historic reality. But when you look at the landscape, in 1965, 50% of Catholic children in America went to Catholic schools. Today, it's less than 8%. So we're always constantly looking at that. Where is the disconnect? We have parents investing in Catholic education and spending a lot believing that the formation is going to be this solid, sturdy bedrock. And yet, when kids graduate, we see the statistics that some of them identify as atheists, socialists, Marxists. And I know that you have done a great deal of research and study as to why that happens. We know we're in combat against secular relativism, Mm -hmm. nihilism. But Let's talk about restoration, because that's where you're a part of, not what's going wrong, but what's going right, the the classical education model. So I guess I want to start there. What is, in your opinion, the purpose of education in the classical sense? Uh, Yes, that's a great question. The purpose of education is to uh, begin with wonder uh, and that natural wonder that our kids have when they come out and say, why, mommy, why, why is this? What's going on here? Uh, and then the the end of it is the truth, and that truth is Jesus Christ. And in between is the education, and that's the formation of the child to become someone who can think critically, to evaluate the difference between truth and falsity, and to choose truth, and to choose virtue, and to become a man or woman who lives a life of heroic virtue, uh, and ultimately becomes a saint. And, and so that's that is the model, and that is the beauty of the Catholic uh, educational tradition that we've had for, for 2,000 years that we got away from. And we kind of took a, a page out of the secular educational model, and, and it's not gone very well for us, but we're part of this burgeoning movement that is just growing rapidly to return to what was so successful, so successful for us the last 2,000 years. So let's look at what that is. I mean, as you kind of just pointed out, classical education, it doesn't just teach calculations and figures, but how to be a good person, how to be a saint, really. And so Mm -hmm. in the classical sense, is that the liberal arts? What are we looking at? Astronomy, rhetoric, what does that consist of? Yeah, so the the liberal arts, you've got um, the four, um, essentially humanities, and then you've got three, uh, think of math and sciences, uh, and And they kind of correlate with the phases of human development as well. And for example, um, in the, uh, the, in my kindergarten at Divine Mercy Academy and others, uh, we focus on memorization. Uh, and that's, that's a, that's a phase where children love to just parrot things that, you know, that parents say, uh, for better or for worse. Um, but we take advantage of that and we say, hey, kids love memorizing things. They love singing. And so let's have them memorize something useful like the history, the timeline of, world history. And so you'll go into a kindergarten classroom and they'll be memorizing and they can come out and recite uh, major uh, events in world history from the beginning of time. Right now, our kids are up to the middle ages and they've got dance moves and they've got, you know, gestures and things that they do with every single thing that helps them remember. And that framework, they may not understand, you know, everything that goes into each of those events, but they have that memorized in their soul that when they go to refer to events that happen in history, they've got that timeline built into them and they can figure out where, what goes where and what on. So they, that, that's for one example. Another example in middle school, kids love, they become argumentative in middle school. They're always, why do I have to do this? You know, I don't want to do that. I, I'd rather do this. 
And then we take advantage of that as well. Uh, and we say, hey, let's, let's pr- give you the tools to debate and, and to critically think about something. And then we turn you loose on some rich topic, like, for example, St. Thomas More. Like, was it right for him? Did he do the right thing to, to hold firm to his principles? What's more important, holding firm, uh, firm to your principles or giving in to, to, to go along? Uh, and so the, the, the uh, Catholic liberal education and liberal arts um, mimic and they, or they come alongside natural human development and take us from the point of where we are when we're first starting. They capitalize on that curiosity and that wonder, and then they form us at a, at a stage that's um, proper for our particular maturity and take us all the way uh, to when we're an adult. Your life and what you're doing is is such a treasure. It's such a gift to families and to the church, really, and to souls and your community because. For those who have heard your story, and maybe for those that haven't, let's just touch on that a little bit. Where you came from, I think, is is so surprising, one would expect, of being raised first by a single mom who chose life and then having a pretty immense intellectual gift and going to a very prestigious school in New England where you then were kind of a self-professed atheist. And at the outside, you had everything you could imagine in terms of a scholar and the deposit of education, but really you realized after you were challenged that all that mattered wasn't what you thought. And so what a contrast that you have and and not to mention the service experience and being all over the world. So I guess to that point, when you look back at yourself and the education that you had and where you came from, do you did you realize then that you knew what was missing and have you seen a difference in your own children in the way that you've raised them and oriented them towards this um kind of socratic and classical model yeah so so i grew up and like probably most of your listeners were we were in the secular model of education so that was memorize these facts regurgitate on the test and then you flush it and you move on uh, and it's right. a mile wide and an inch deep uh, and the goal of it is, you know, what is the purpose? You know, you ask the teacher, why are we, why are we learning this? And they said, well, you, so you can get a job and you can go to college. And, and it has a very practical end to it. Um, but, and that's, I appreciated that. I mean, I wanted to get a job at a college and I wanted to, you know, make money and support my family. Uh, and that was great. But it didn't bring me joy and it didn't bring me happiness or a sense of peace. It didn't show me how I had to live my life, what a good life looked like. Um, and, and as a result, I was miserable and I, I didn't want to learn. By the time I was finished with college, they had beaten every last you know, ounce of wonder or curiosity or desire to learn had been completely beaten out of me. And it was only in recovering this, reading the, the Greeks, uh, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, and then hearing them just ask those big questions, well, what is it to live a good life? How we ought to live? Then my heart just responded to these questions that it just it hears the truth and it responds naturally. And, and then through that re-education uh, of myself um, with the help of others, I was able to kind of reclaim this wonder, this desire to learn, and then figure out what, what do I, what should I do with my life and how do I live a good life? How do I serve the Lord? And, and all of it pointed toward Christ. And then when you bring Christ into your life, all of a sudden everything becomes clear at that point in time. And so, so for me, it was all these, this education is you know, front and center for all of that and critical for the transformation of my life from one way to another way. 
We're speaking with Lieutenant Commander Ali Ghaffari, former F-18 Navy pilot, now headmaster, founder of Divine Mercy Academy. And it's easy to get discouraged, of course. You see the negative data, especially looking at how far we are set back because of COVID and in terms of education standards, so many failing schools, but also the attrition of enrollment in Catholic schools. And then, of course, infiltration of things like the secular Marxist, honestly, curriculum, and you know this because you've studied it and in John Dewey and Enlightenment and all that goes into it, rationalism. And so it is heartening, though, to see like what you're doing and where growth is happening and that there is, in some cases, even a hybrid. And and so I guess a question there, can you tell us maybe for the parent or the Catholic educator how to incorporate that in the model maybe that they have where they are? Is it starting with maybe adding a little enrichment like Latin or literature? What would you say as a starting point? Gosh, uh, that's a hard question um, because it's really an entirely different way of looking at education. Um, For our Catholic educators who are working so hard in our our Catholic schools, or maybe they're working in a public school, uh, it's hard to to just do it a little bit, uh, and because it's a completely different way of looking at it. So the secular model is uh, what facts do they need to know to be um, to do well in the standardized test so they can get into college and get, then get a job, whereas um, a classical school or Catholic liberal uh, education states, how do we become a better human being? Um, and so I guess, you know, the answer, the short answer to your question is, uh, is do your best to have that end in mind as you create your curriculum or whatever you do. But that's, that's, a, that's a very short term and uh, probably an unsatisfying solution. You're not going to make a lot of headway because the whole system is, is the inertia is completely against what you're trying to do. So the easier, while it's still hard, the easier thing to do would be to extract yourself from the system and then to be a part of this other movement, which is growing, growing up. And that's either starting a school that's joining uh, a co-op uh, or that's joining another classical school or Catholic school uh, using the Catholic intellectual tradition, uh, joining that effort and then, then learning and then and becoming adept in the pedagogy um, and using your talents in that way uh, at the service of the church. Um, and I think that's going to be the easier way to do it. I want to make sure this is really important before, as I'm looking at the time we get into the break, that one of the great fruits from your work, from this pursuit of knowledge and your love of literature and your profound conversion is a new book that you've recently released after, I know, years of conceptualizing with your friend Paul List and in co-writing with him. And I want you to tell us about that because that is a huge fruit of your work and all you've done. It's called Mount Doom, and it has pretty remarkable connections to Tolkien and the theology of Aquinas. So can you give us a little sneak peek? Yeah, for sure. So uh, so Paul was the, the reason I'm, I'm Catholic. He was the God's chosen instrument to bring me into the church. And Paul um, grew up reading Tolkien. And, uh, and then in, he had a conversion of, of his own before mine, uh, where he read a lot of Aquinas and a lot of Aristotle. And so he had all of these things floating around in, in his mind. Uh, and it started to, to coalesce into some clarity. And he said, gosh, Ali, we, we need to write this. And for seven, for, you know, several years, he just said, Ali, I need you to help me. I need you to help me. And finally, he said, yes, all right, I'll help you. And for seven years, we spent writing this book. And the beauty of it is so amazing. Jared Tolkien was raised uh, by a priest in, in large part 
who was the secretary, the personal secretary of Cardinal St. John Henry Newman. And Cardinal Newman ran a school, and the school that he ran was a classical Catholic school uh, called the Birmingham Oratory. And he had all of his, uh, all the other priests who came uh, into the church from the Anglican Church with him. They surrounded him there, and that was the air they breathed there was the scholasticism, this, this classical uh, education. And so Tolkien, after Newman passed, Tolkien came in there, was raised by these same men who were raised, uh, who were brought up with, with Newman. And this was what he was learned, and this is the education that Tolkien had. Uh, and so in doing the research of, for this book, I, I was discovering all of these things about Newman. And so Newman wrote, uh, there was an encyclical by Pope Leo XIII, Attorney Patris, which, which talks about this education and bringing scholasticism back into Catholic schools. And I've got a letter from Newman to Pope Leo that says, I 100% agree, we need to do this. Uh, and so I'm 100% confident that this was you know, the formation that was going on in uh, the Birmingham Oratory, in the school that Tolkien uh, was raised in. Uh, and we have a copy of uh, Tolkien's personal Summa Theologica, which has uh, his, his, the priest, Father Xavier Morgan's um, hand-scratched notes in there. They got Tolkien's notes in there. Uh, and so I know this is important to Tolkien. So using this, this scholastic framework and his understanding of the classics, he was able to pull out um, and create a mythology that was so much deeper on the surface. Like we all read Tolkien, we said, ah, oh, it's so beautiful. There's something to it. I can't put my finger on it. But for us, we've taken the, the proper lens that was the scholasticism and then brought everything into focus. And then we give the interpretation of what Tolkien was trying to communicate uh, in his mythology right into the middle of the book. So that's It's so it. exciting. I mean, the years that this has been germinating and to see it bloom and it has uh five stars on amazon mount doom the prophecy of tolkien revealed by paul list and ali ghaffari available now and really i guess wherever books are sold it it looks fantastic i i have a copy i started reading it with my 16 year old son and we had seen the movies we had started to read the hobbit but i've not read lord of the rings and it inspired us to go back and actually read the entire series as well. So what a fantastic invitation and inspiration. And as you talked about all the connections between Aquinas, Pope Leo XIII, uh, St. John Cardinal, Henry Cardinal Newman, and even you dedicate the book to Tolkien's mother. Isn't that right? Mm. Yes, we do. She was an amazing woman. Uh, she sacrificed everything. She's a convert to the faith. Uh, and as a result of that conversion, she was thrown out, uh, and she was a single mom with n- really no income and not supported by either you know, either family. Uh, and so this this created conditions where she was impoverished, and ultimately she passed away at a, a younger age. I think Tolkien was uh, maybe 12, 11, 12 years old, and his mom was you know, maybe in her 30s. Uh, she was very young. And so Tolkien sees her as a martyr for the faith, uh, And uh, but she was his primary educator. She taught him. Uh, got him interested in the classics, in these the fairy tales, and in languages, and taught him languages. And so she is the inspiration. And without her, this certainly wouldn't have happened. Oh, my goodness. God bless the moms and the dads and, you know, the beauty yeah. of the body of Christ. Thank you so much. As always, the content is abundant. The time is scarce. And there's so much to get to. Hopefully, we can have you back on again. Lieutenant Commander Ali Ghaffari, my guest, former Navy F-18 
Hornet fighter pilot now convinced the biggest war is one for the souls of our children. And he's responded to the most important mission uh, as as husband and father, also as educator answering that call. Ali, how can we find out more about Divine Mercy Academy? If you go to divinemercy.md, that's the best place to go. Okay. God bless you. We will keep you in our prayers and thank you for all you do. Thank you, Brooke. Thank you. When we come back, Father Robert Nixon will join us all the way from Australia for the first time ever in English translation of Meditations on Death from Thomas Akempis is available thanks to his work as translator in presenting us with that volume along with 10 books. And it's brand new from one of the best Christian writers of all time. We will open the pages, explore the message after the break. It's Brooke Taylor in for Timory, who's on maternity leave. You are listening to Trending. We'll be right back. Stay with us. This February 24th, our show sponsor, Colby Academy, is hosting a virtual college fair where high school students can hear from top Catholic colleges and universities from around the world. Register at RelevantRadio.com slash Colby. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. Welcome back to the program. It's Brooke Taylor in for Timory. You're listening to Trending. Over the weekend, I spent some time reading the letters of Father Joseph Damien de Voister, of course, now known as St. Damien the Leper, missionary to the lepers of Molokai, who himself became a leper and eventually died 16 years after serving among a population that was outcast, forgotten. He served as priest, carpenter, even grave digger, and the letters are in the public domain. So I was able to go and really just pour over everything he wrote to his family, to his brother, who was also a priest. And I ran across one that was actually written today on this day, January 31st, 1880. So 143 years ago today. And so I thought it was an appropriate way to actually get into our next segment because it is very literally a meditation on death. And that's what we're going to be talking about from the great writer Thomas Akempis as translated from our guest, Father Robert Nixon, joining us from Australia. So I want to begin there if you would join me. And I recognize that this may be a bit morbid, but it's the reality and we will bring it to, you know, this eschatological truth and where it can then orient us to heaven. So this is what he writes from Molokai, January 31st, 1880, Father Damien. He said, I have had the opportunity of closely observing and as it were touching with my hand, human misery under its most terrible aspect. Half the people are like living corpses, which the worms have already begun to devour, at first internally, afterwards externally, until the most loathsome wounds are formed, which very rarely heal. Since I have been here, I have buried from 190 to 200 every year, and still the number of living lepers is always over 700. Last year, death carried off an unusually large number of Christians. There are many empty places in the church, but in the cemetery, there is hardly room left to dig the graves. I was quite vexed the other day to find they had begun to dig a grave just by the large cross in the very spot which I had so long reserved for myself. I had to insist on the place being left vacant. 
the cemetery, church, and presbytery from one enclosure. Thus, at nighttime, I am the sole keeper of this garden of the dead, where my spiritual children lie at rest. My greatest pleasure is to go there and to say my beads and to meditate on that unending happiness, which so many of them are already enjoying. There, too, my thoughts dwell on the sufferings of purgatory. I confess to you, my dear brother, the cemetery and the hospital where the dying lie are my best meditation books, as well for the benefit of my own soul as in the view of preparing my instructions. So there goes on the letter of now Saint Damien of Molokai from January 31st, 1880. And I think it does tie into the topic we now transition to for the first time ever it is an English translation of the works of Thomas Akempis available. It's called Meditations on Death, Preparing for Eternity. It is part of a set presented by Tan Books. And Father Nixon was tasked with, with the honor of translating into the English language for the first time and joining us now all the way from Australia and uh, with us today. Hi, Father. Hello, Brooke. How are you? Great. It's good to connect with you. It's actually tomorrow. Well, it's the it's February, I guess, right now. Is that right where you are? Um, yes, indeed, indeed. So we're somehow one day ahead of you over here. Okay. That's fantastic. Well, thank you for, for joining us and for certainly the treasure of this book. It was nice to kind of begin that as we go into this classroom of St. Damien and then now Thomas Akempis, and and you as a big part of that, this idea that our entire existence is a novitiate for e eternity. And so um, I just, I guess, wanted to start there. Your, your education, first of all, the, the qualifications for you to be able to translate this is really staggering, impressive. You've studied composition, musicology, philosophy, literature, theology, education, and served as an advisor to Arts Queensland and many other accolades. But so how did you come to role as translator for this particular text? Well, um, as a Benedictine monk, one of our, uh, a, a big part of our charism and our spiritual life is spiritual reading. And um, we have here at our, library, at our monastery, uh, an immense library, some 80,000 books. And um, a part of our, our Benedictine spirituality is the transmission of books. So through most of the Middle Ages, one of the things which monks did was copy out books by hand. So for me, um, doing translation of Latin works and making them available to contemporary readers um, is a continuation of that part of our Benedictine tradition. And in the translator's note in the beginning of this volume, you say that many of Kempis's writings are still actually untranslated to this day, That's which is right. remarkable. Why, which, why is which that? It's remarkable. And um, yeah. of course, his Imitation of Christ is an immensely book, uh, popular work, one of the most widely read books of all time. But he yes. was a very prolific author, and his complete works uh, in the early editions run to a great many volumes, and only... Um, only perhaps half of them have been translated into English. So there's a, a great deal of his work which remains untranslated. And I found this particular work in a 1523 edition of his, um, of his writings. And it was such a striking uh, and powerful work, even though it's relatively short. 
one of the things which he recommends in the imitation of Christ is that we practice this meditation upon death because it's a, a powerful way of preparing our souls for eternity and equipping ourselves for the journey of this present life. And in this work, he kind of provides the content, the method, the substance of this uh, very beneficial practice of meditating upon death. Well, maybe I'm so glad you said that, Father, because I thought that's kind of our disclaimer, which is customary whenever Catholics <laughs> discuss memento mori, to remember your death, that it's not this macabre idolatry of death, but rather instructive no. for the living and an old Christian tradition, always what we've done. Can you speak to that? Very much so. So this meditation on death uh, is, as you said, quite correctly, is not a, a morbid thing, but it's rather a reminder of the finitude of our earthly life, that everything in this earthly life um, is passing. But on the other hand, we're preparing ourselves for this unbounded eternity, which awaits us. And I think the remindfulness of the transitory nature of this life can be a great source of strength, because whatever suffering or trouble we're going through, we're confident that it's not going to last forever. And also, on the other hand, whatever might be tempting us or distracting us, it allows us to put it in its proper perspective in the context of eternity, to think how, how important is this thing which I'm perhaps so worried about or tempted by today. And, um, and keeping everything in the context of eternity is, is right. It, it, it equips us with this uh, wonderful spiritual strength. And in fact, in the rule of St. Benedict, which is what we follow as monks, he suggests that we should keep death before our eyes every day. So I think it's a very sp spiritually beneficial uh, practice. It encourages us also to make the very most of our precious time here on earth as the one opportunity of living the gospel, of living the kind of life which Christ is calling us to. But the way in which Kempis speaks in, in the illustrations that he paints with words is not something I think we're accustomed to hearing these days. Of course, this was the late Middle Ages. And by the way, our guest, Father Robert Nixon, OSB, translating eight ancient Christian texts for Tan. This is one of them, the first time in English, Meditations on Death, Thomas Kempis. But in the opening chapter, and I want to read this, Kempis says, in this world, human beings make enormous efforts to acquire honor for themselves and seek avidly to attain happiness in any form possible, yet how few make any comparable effort to attain the glory which lasts forever, to secure for themselves the happiness which never ends. So essentially, with, with great sobriety, to consider our earthly body, this lump of clay, and our end. And that's a scary notion for many people, Father. And even, you know, Christians struggle with that. And it comes out in a culture of extremes, I think, that we see now. We either see a frantic obsession to avoid death with things like human enhancements and trying to slow or prevent the aging process altogether to deny it's even there, or the opposite with this euthanasia death on demand culture. And so what is the rightly ordered yeah. approach for the Christian? Yes, you're quite right. And, and this contrasts very much, as you pointed out, the late medieval culture where death was a visible part of life with plagues and famines and wars being something which, were, which no one could hide from or deny to our culture today, which while those things are still present, people either want to um, preserve their, their youth and as if to deny 
the reality of death altogether or just to make it a, a medical fact which uh, is something which, which happens but is no big deal. But um, yes, I think that we need to, to confront the reality of our mortal finitude head on. Um, and this is um, that we're all, in the, as we live, we're actually in the process of, of dying in a certain sense. That, um, you know, the sands of the hourglass are drifting away for each one of us. And that might sound morbid, but in fact, it's a reality of, in which we live. And it alone teaches us how to make properly ordered moral decisions. So I think our, our, the right attitude towards death for a Christian is that we are continually trying to come to terms with it and not thinking of it as this final full stop, but rather as this doorway which is opening us uh, into the great kingdom of heaven. So, um, so I think, I think to, to, to view it as this transition, as a preparation for that moment when we will confront our own souls in, their, um, in, their, in a perfectly honest state and also confront this um, omnipotent and eternal God who is filled with love and mercy but whose ways are entirely transcendent to our own. Father, I want to go into the portion of the book where the sinner is about to die. In the book, he reflects on his life, how much time he has wasted on things that don't matter, the things he spent his time chasing, uh, the superficial cares and the worries. And he says, sighs of regret issue from the depths of my heart. Oh my God, why was I so negligent? Why did I waste my days in useless and inane conversations? and this is before social media, of course, <laughs> in pointless activities and in empty and futile thoughts, living like one who is in a dream of who is blindly stupefied with intoxication. My heart, only now pierced with compunction, weeps with inex inexpressible regret over the time I wasted so vainly. That's heavy. And so here there is this final examination of conscience, this deathbed confession. And in our modern era, we rarely hear reflections like that at all. I, we are told, yes, God is perfect justice, but he's also magnanimously merciful. And why don't you think we hear more? Because it is extremely, and we'll get to this, extremely vivid when you look at the souls of the damned and hell and the images that come forth. And it's not something that often we hear sermons and priests talk about. Now, forgive me because I'm generalizing, but that's been my experience. So do you think just culturally we're just more focused on mercy or does it do us a disservice to not address this aspect, this reality? Uh, well, yes, indeed. So um, I think our, our culture at the moment is perhaps uh, a, a, a reaction to what was perceived as being the traditional emphasis on the fear of punishment and so forth. Um, but this fear of punishment um, is is also an expression of the love of God. Because if you think about it, you, you fear to offend God. Um, it's not that you only fear the punishment and, and don't fear offending God in himself, but the two are inseparably related. The same as the desire of heaven and the love of God, because the joys of heaven are the same as being in the presence of God. And so they, 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 we can't separate the two. So, um, you know, if we read the Gospels carefully and we read what Jesus says, 
he actually makes quite a lot of references to the torments of hell. He talks about the fires that were prepared for the devil and his angels and those who are accursed, who, who didn't give to the hungry and to the thirsty and so forth, being sent there. He speaks about the outer darkness where, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He speaks about where the worm doesn't die and the fire is never extinguished. So um, if, if, we, if Jesus himself came back as a preacher in a church today, a lot of people would be struck perhaps and surprised by how often he seems to be speaking about hellfire. But in fact, these are the words of the gospel which, um, which we can be tempted to gloss over. So this is one of, of the realities and this is one of the reasons Christ came into this world to spare us from this eternal torment. So I think, um, you know, it's, it's not wise for us just to shut it out of our mind and consciousness because it is an eternal reality. It is a real possibility. Um, so to prepare ourselves, to guard ourselves against sin and deception and temptation, I think is, is a very wise thing to do. And that we shouldn't, we shouldn't you know, deny this um, because to, to deny something doesn't remove its reality. It just takes our, our guards away. We're talking about the writings of Thomas Akempis, one of the most prolific Christian writers in the history of Christian devotions, and has a newly translated, thanks to Father Robert Nixon in English for the first time, volume, Meditations on Death, Preparing for Eternity. And Father, one of the most visceral images that Kempis illustrates is what happens to our senses in hell. And even going back to that letter, you know, when I was reading St. Damien of Molokai, his own experience with the lepers and the constant stench, you know, the rotting flesh. And just as in life, I think, you know, we see a foretaste of heaven with the glories of the natural world. It made me wonder if these were not foretastes of the infernal realm. These are human experiences that induce such agony that it makes you wonder. He talks about this wretched odor that is is so intense that you you can't breathe. So, um, what stuck out to you about the yes? Senses? And and this was this was one of the most uh, striking things, which really made me think it would be a good work to translate the vividness of his prose in describing things, which makes them uh, very very real. So he talks here, he says, disgusting and nauseating odors of decomposition and death, together with the acrid stench of sulfur, will perpetually plague the nose. The sense of taste will be assaulted without remission by stomach-turning concoction of pitch and lead mixed together, and then dissolved in vinegar and gall. This will saturate the lips and fill the mouth and throat as an invisible infusion or diabolical brew. Hence the tormented souls will try to avoid breathing, knowing that to breathe will mean taking in the foul stench and disgusting flavor of the hellish atmosphere. But of course, it is impossible to stop breathing by an act of will. So the damned will be in a state of continually alternating suffocation and disgust from which no rest or respite is possible. And this is, I think, typical of the, this kind of uh, powerful prose which he puts there. And it's almost as if he's received a kind of spiritual enlightenment um, uh, which we find to a certain degree also in Dante's descriptions of hell, that it's, it's, it's vividly there and it draws upon all of our sensory experiences. And of course, we know that the joys of heaven and the torments of hell completely transcend our physical senses, but our physical senses still remain our most um, accurate way of, of imagining these, 
of getting uh, close to something like what the reality is, although, of course, the reality in itself is something which exceeds what our senses can possibly experience. Yes, I think that's definitely evident, you know, just our inability to even conceive of of, of the depth in width and, and height and depth as well. Uh, Father Robert Nixon is with us, and he has translated eight ancient Christian texts for Tan Publishers. We've actually linked up to this particular volume, Meditations on Death, Preparing for Eternity, Thomas Akempis, and you can find that on the Trending with Timory social pages on Twitter, also on Facebook. And when we come back, I want to talk about lessons in time. We also have a phone call to take and making the most of the days that we've been giving and a message of hope kind of alluding to those glories of heaven. And we will visit that as a note of encouragement to wrap up. My name is Brooke Taylor. This is Trending. You're listening to Relevant Radio, one 914 If you have a question for Father Robert Nixon, joining us from Australia, we'll be right back here on Relevant Radio. Listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. Welcome back to the show. It's Brooke Taylor in for Timory. Do you have a question for Ro- Father Robert Nixon? He is on the line all the way from Australia. We are talking about the newly translated Meditations on Death, Preparing for Eternity by Thomas Akempis that he was tasked to translate for the first time ever in the English language. It is available through 10 books. The studio line is open, one 914 to join the conversation. Patricia is on the line from Reno about, with a single heart, being able to meditate on death. And Patricia, are you there? You're on with Father Robert. Uh, yes, I am. Thank you for taking my call. Um, You're welcome. Uh, okay, so I'll just go ahead. I know there's limited time. Um, yeah. Thank you, Father, for talking about this topic. Um, I try each day to meditate on death and eternal truth, but um, I want to cherish eternal life over temporal life, but I find that my heart is divided, and I find myself uh, what are some practical ways to help with this divided heart when I find myself cherishing material security, for example, or family members over eternal life, or, you know, when my heart is divided? A very useful thing, uh, Patricia, to remind oneself that all of these things are, um, are passing, worldly riches, um, even our relations with, with family members and so forth. So I think um, mentally to practice saying goodbye to everything which, um, which is, is within your life, you know, to think what would happen if I was to lose all of this, if I was to lose my, my car, my house, my health and so forth, um, and even the loved ones, to prepare yourself to almost to, to, to practice a kind of mourning as if you had lost them, if that makes any sense. So, for example, if there's a loved one in your life, to think, how would I feel if if this person was to pass away? And by preparing ourselves for this loss, um, when these things actually do happen, we've uh, we to a certain extent are already strengthened against them. Um, but at the same time, don't feel overly anxious if you sense that your heart is to a certain degree divided, because as long as we're in this mortal life. 
we do have a responsibility to to value the things of this mortal life so we give them a, a you know an appropriate degree of attention um, our focus on eternal life doesn't mean we disregard uh, the things in in our temporal life altogether but it's finding that right balance and to think every time we do a work um, whatever it is even if it's something for, for something which is only temporal to offer it up to the glory of God and that then gives it an eternal consequence or an eternal dimension. I hope that helps. And that was a great question, beautiful answer, Father. And I know in the book there is that meditation that we may sit and really think about, and he walks us through that. And that's saying goodbye, as you said. And in the monastic life, I know the Psalms, the divine office, all that is oriented, even your work, you know, going out and, and working, for example, in a garden where you feel the resistance of the soil with the shovel or the the prayers, again, the divine office, and, and even, you know, the liturgy. I want to maybe ask about about that. And I, I know that we're getting a, um, short on time, but up until I think the 18th century, music was composed, for example, to serve a specific function, usually within the church. And now it's almost like an artifact, like Mozart's Requiem. We don't use it in its original context. And so I think now when we hear Mozart's Requiem, it's at a concert hall as opposed to a funeral mass. Do you see that ever having a restoration? Um, yes, very much so. I think today there is a, a growing awareness of the importance um, of, of music in the liturgy and of the liturgy itself. And um, ideally, the liturgy should kind of be a, um, a, a portal between our existence in time and space and eternity. So in entering into the liturgy, we, to a certain extent, enter into the kingdom of eternity. And this is very much the idea with our monastic um, chanting of the Psalms and, and so forth, that it's supposed to be like a reflection of the angelic court, of what's going on, uh, of the singing of the glory of God in our celestial homeland. So um, I think this is so important. So in the liturgy, it's a kind of stepping out of the world of time into the world of eternity. And with our monastic life, you know, because our monasteries typically are very old places and we're, we're always conscience, conscious of the generations of uh, Benedictine monks who have gone before us. And we see so many reminders of that. So it's a situation in which the past and the present and the eternal future um, are kind of moved into one or exist in a kind of continuous spectrum. Father Robert Nixon is with us from Australia. We have just a few minutes left. We're talking about the volume that he translated for the first time ever in English, Thomas Akempis' Meditations on Death, Preparing for Eternity. And speaking of the man himself, maybe you can put to rest what is fake news or is it real <laughs> apocryphal? And that is the idea. Was was Thomas Akempis buried alive? Yes. Um, this, I, I believe, is actually an apocryphal story. And it came about when people started to wonder, why is this great author not a canonized saint? And um, then the story popped up that he was actually buried alive and they found that his body had moved in the grave. And for that reason, they couldn't declare him a saint because they didn't know what his final state was. Um, but looking at the very early lives, there's no mention of that at all. And it only starts to get mentioned from the 19th century onwards. So I, I suspect that it is 
actually an apocryphal story. Well, um, oh my goodness. Yeah, and there is something in there. Again, we just have a few minutes left, but you talk about uh, early on in, in the idea, well, Kempis does conversion. Thus, deathbed repentance is inherently uncertain in its efficacy since its sincerity is not demonstrated or supported by any works or reformation of life. So does that mean, does that call into question uh, deathbed repentance? Uh, it, it, it's not <clears throat> saying that deathbed repentance can't be efficacious and work, but what he's saying is that we have no way of knowing, even the person concerned, how sincere it is. Because if you um, deliberately put off repenting until you've reached the end, then that, I think, undermines the whole idea of, of, of the sincerity of it. For repentance to be sincere, you really need to wish to do the right thing in the future and to undertake that and to support it with actions. Um, so for this reason, uh, it's a little bit like a person being sorry for a crime only after they've being caught. Um, so to, genuinely to be sorry implies this real will for action. So for this reason, um, it, it's not a good idea to rely upon death repent, deathbed repentance or to wait until one reaches that state. Because if repentance is real, it implies an active conversion of life. And also the fact is that when we reach the end of our life, a lot of people find that their spiritual condition um, and their mental condition actually becomes quite feeble so that they don't have that resolution um, which, which they enjoy during the fullness of health. So for that reason, it behooves us very much to seize the day as far as correcting whatever we need to correct in our life and living out whatever um, good things, whatever good works God might be calling us to, to do them today because today is the, the day which we've got and the only day on which we can count not to well, put off I, things until tomorrow. As you say that, I'm thinking of the children of Fatima and just their urgency of praying prayers of reparation because of the visions that, that they saw and that reminder. And I know we just have a few brief minutes left. I always want to wrap up on a hopeful message. So uh, since yeah. that is what sets us apart from the rest of the world is we are people of the resurrection of hope. So the last part of the book, Canticles of Heaven, can you give us just a quick glimpse and maybe a final word? Yes, indeed. So um, Thomas Akempis provides us with very beautiful and vivid descriptions of heaven as well as of hell and purgatory. And I think these are, are absolutely beautiful. And I'll just share a little bit with you. Um, how great the joy, what sweet delights, which shall abound in heaven's height. There Christ the Lord and Mary mild, bestow in grace peace undefiled. In palaces of azure cloud, the angel hosts give voice to loud eternal hymns in countless choirs with all the joy which love inspires their hearts enwrapped in waves of bliss receiving god's most holy kiss on lyric harp and crystal flute and silver shawm and gold-strung lute and he goes on um, with this uh, wonderful verse and on the glories of heaven which exceed anything which we can ever imagine and all of our hearts desires will be perfectly fulfilled there so this is a very positive note on which to conclude the book, to think of death as this joyful and triumphant entrance into our celestial homeland of eternal peace and glory. 
Glory to Jesus Christ. Amen. What a crescendo to end on. Thank you so much, Father Robert Nixon. God bless you. You are in our prayers, and we will tuck you into the rosary coming up. The Family Rosary Across America is next. That book, Meditations on Death, you can find via TAN Publishers. We've linked that up on the Trending with Timory page. Thank you to producer Jim Patrick Alog on the phones. My name is Brooke Taylor. I will be back with you later this week. God bless you. <laughs>